This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with another Storage Unpacked podcast. I'm here today with Matt Butcher from Fermion, Matt. Yeah, this is great to be here. I'm excited for today's conversation. So tell us what Fermion is. What do you do? What's the company do? What do you do? So Fermion is building the next wave of cloud computing. And, and really sort of where we got started was a, a bunch of us worked at Microsoft back in the early Kubernetes days. We worked on projects like Helm and 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 brigade and draft and we we had this great position there where our team's mandate was to build tools that sort of fostered and grew the container ecosystem and along the way uh do as much of this in open source as possible in fact we did almost all everything we did in open source and pushed as much of those projects as we could up into the cncf but at the same time it was an awesome job at microsoft because we got all this access to all the other teams inside of Microsoft. We work closely with the AKS team. We'd meet with, you know, the compute team and the functions team. And also, you know, Microsoft customers, as you can imagine, Microsoft customers, they've got everything from gigantic megacorps to, to very small um, emerging companies. And so we got to talk to lots of them and go all to the to go to all these conferences like Open Source Summit and KubeCon and things like that. So we had sort of like this unprecedented level of interaction with different teams of spread across different companies, all of whom were trying to make this transition into the cloud native ecosystem and figure out how containers worked, how serverless functions worked, how VMs worked, what the strong points were for each of those. And several years ago, uh, we started doing a little bit of research in runtimes and saying, is there kind of, if virtual machines are a big heavyweight class and containers are a middle, you know, is there a lightweight runtime? And that got us into WebAssembly. And not too long after that, about 10 of us left uh, left Microsoft, went off and started Fermion, really saying, okay, we think WebAssembly may hold the key for building kind of this next wave of cloud computing. And that serverless is going to play a big story in this next wave of cloud computing. So we started around the end of 2021. So we're about a year and a half-ish into Fermion's life. Uh, team's about 30 people strong now, and it has been just one wild and fun journey so far. Excellent. So two things I really have to highlight there. First of all, Microsoft and open source. Microsoft and open source is <laughs> an interesting one. You know, <laughs> that was always a bit of a negative um, a few years ago. I oh, yeah. I want yeah. to say what um, certain previous CEOs said about um, open source, but and especially, uh, Lin especially not, Linux. Nothing to do with viruses and, and no. Linux. No, not, mm. yeah. yeah. But, if you had told me in 98 or 99 that I would work for Microsoft, I would have been like, no, I am not so my soul that easily uh, but it was fun to be part of microsoft's real emergence into open source which which has been amazing to see actually it, it has yeah. been fantastic to see but you also talked about the other thing which is really sort of the big topic of the day and that's WebAssembly. and mm -hmm. everywhere you go nowadays you can't go anywhere without tripping over WebAssembly being discussed as the latest and greatest big thing good good which you know, is, <laughs> i'm happy to hear that i'm sure you, i'm sure you are yeah it's good good and bad you know <laughs> And but it's something that was out. I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. It was it was being touted, and there was a, a mm -hmm. there was a company that we we saw, um, a company called Droplet Computing, and they were doing um, WebAssembly in the uh, browser for um, yeah. old software versions. So it looked it looked like a really fascinating technology. So you know, we're not necessarily going to dive into the WebAssembly stuff today, but it's you know it's another area which I think is going to be really interesting to look at in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and I think kind of the key point about WebAssembly, which could have been the key point about Java, key point about Ruby and all of these, is a lot of times we build technologies with one target in mind and then discover after creating them that there's so much more that can be done with those. And, and in this case, I think we, we just picked one particular niche, a particular set of problems and found that WebAssembly fit very nicely in there. But I'm sure we'll see it all over the place. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so let's go and talk about serverless a bit more then. So for those who are uninitiated who haven't really sort of dug into what serverless really means, what is it exactly? How would you best describe it? Yeah, I, I think that the term has gotten used in three sort of distinct ways of which I think there's one that's really the one that we would want to focus on today. You know, I think some people, when they think, when they talk about and think about serverless, they really just mean somebody else manages the infrastructure, 
right? Uh, so that's a very broad definition. Uh, I think there's a slightly narrower version in which uh, in which people say, okay, when we talk about the ser- what's what's the server and serverless? That first definition doesn't answer that question, right? It just says I don't whatever the server is, I don't I don't know about it. The second one is really saying, no, we abstract away um, specifically the notion of a CPU or memory or things like that, and so we're dealing very specifically with trying to. Uh, talk about the hardware part of serverless is the thing that we're not that, that, that we no longer have to care about. I actually think the, the most interesting way to talk about serverless is from a software perspective. When we when we talk about servers and software, we talk about setting up a socket server, a long running process that's going to listen on a socket and it's going to be uh, they're reacting to every incoming request. You manage the process, you manage the, the networking, you manage kind of all that kind of thing. If, if you look at the, the current, you know, sort of classic example of a serverless functions platform, it's Lambda. And what did Lambda have to offer? Well, Lambda's primary offer is you, the software developer, do not need to manage the part of the software that stands up the server that's listening all the time, right? Instead, you're really dealing more at the event handling mechanism, right? A request comes in, you're given the request, you process it, you return a result, and you shut back down again, right? And so I think that ends up being probably the most useful definition of serverless for at least the, the kinds of things that I get the most excited about, uh, even though I think those other two have been used and, and with and, and with validity been used in other cases. That's just not the case that tends yeah. to get me as, as riled up. <laughs> and that makes sense. And I think if you look at the that definition, you could look at it two ways, first of all. First is to say this is very much a request and response type mechanism. So mm-hmm. it's changing the programming paradigm to a certain degree that says rather than that classic start, middle and end, if this is a, a scenario where you're responding to an action and that action could be mm-hmm. incoming data, it could be an incoming message, it could be request for some sort of piece of information. It, it could be, you know, and here's the parallel. It's, it does sound very much like a, a web server, you know, or that sort of like response mm-hmm. type solution or even you know to a certain degree an object store does the same thing you know you request something yep. you get given back a, a response it's an api it's a it's a i suppose you could even use that definition so there are some parallels yep. with technologies yep. that we've seen in the past <laughs> yeah I mean, shoehorning right into what you just said right if if event management uh, it is if serverless is the computing part of event management right something's emitting events something's directing that event into a particular thing and this thing stands up runs handles the event and shuts itself back down then we we have some very major technologies very formative technologies that i think are sort of the the intellectual precursors or the or the um the web precursors at least to this uh, my my favorite and and you see it in the design of a lot of the stuff fermion did very early on is is cgi uh, so I was a, my, my first kind of tooth cutting adventures in computer science and in programming were all very early on in the, you know, what is effectively the HTML 1.0, HTML 2.0 days, and then nice. playing around with this tool called LiveScript that became JavaScript and a browser called Mosaic that became Netscape. And on the server side, you know, originally the idea was web servers would just deliver static content. Just an HTML page that you know. Well, I well, this was still before my time. You know, it was originally physics papers. You know, yeah. <laughs> the very specific kind of content. Talk about technologies that have really changed and outgrown their origins, right? Uh, physics papers, no doubt, make up minuscule amount of the traffic on today's internet. But this need came to be able to generate that static content dynamically. And so we saw a shift from static web pages to dynamic web pages. And the first big enabling technology for that was called Common Gateway Interface, CGI. And it was just about the most basic way you could do this, right? So the web server would receive the request and it would have a mapping that said when a request comes in on this URL or this URL pattern, execute a shell script or, or a binary somewhere on the system you know no guardrails no safety features whatsoever yeah. just execute something yeah. on the on the command line and then and pass it in some data and return the data back and then the web server handled the transformation of the incoming http payload into environment variables and stuff like that that it could pass on to the cgi program and whatever the cgi program passed in just got kind of wrapped up in the http response headers and, and sent back to the user so when you think about that model, right, that is essentially exactly the kind of thing that 
the, the kind of uh, model that, that serverless wants to do, right? The joyful part of writing CGI, in spite of the fact that it had no guardrails whatsoever and was probably one of the most insecure things we've done. Uh, just a little bit, yeah. Just, you know, there's yeah. no, no risk of there being any sort of code injection exploits with that sort of technology. Oh, course. no, 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 not no, at all. No, no. <laughs> definitely no passing of no. SQL qu uh, queries inside of uh, parameters. Yeah, no. uh, but it was... It was actually really fun to write, though. And why was it fun to write? Well, because it was dead simple, right? I was immediately straight into the business logic. I was immediately straight into writing what I cared about. I wrote a ton of Perl during that time, right? And and Perl was such a great language for being able to do regular expressions and build kind of things that started out as quick and dirty scripts and then kind of evolved from there into bigger and more mature programs. It, it I think, was... At that time, right, it ideally kind of straddled the shell scripting language line and the programming line, the, the heavier duty programming language line that now I think Python and JavaScript own, but then it was Perl. And it was fun. It was fun to write those kinds of programs uh, because I didn't need to know. I mean, this was me as a very young developer. I didn't need to know how a socket server worked. And at that time, if you were going to write an HTTP server, you were starting at the sockets, you were implementing the protocol. It was not a trivial exercise. And yet here I could be a web developer without having to know really much more than the basics of that. Um, and then along, you know, not long after that, a, a programming language came along that really transformed that model one step further. And that was PHP. Right? PHP made it so simple that you didn't have to have any idea really what the HTTP layer was like. You really only had to focus on what the user passed to you and what your output was going to be, right? It was really a glorified template language with some pretty robust uh, embeddable scripting inside of it. And I think those two technologies really, CGI and then PHP after, uh, they're, they're kind of, I think they're the true, I, and you might cringe when I say this about PHP, but I really do think these are kind of the true intellectual precursors to what then became serverless computing a little bit later on. I think I'd, I'd, I definitely agree with you because uh, I can give you a good example. I Another example, I wrote something on um, a mainframe platform in sort of early 90s. This was actually, a, funny enough, it was a key value store. Which we're going <laughs> nice, to go and talk nice. about. We're going to talk about <laughs> in a moment. This, it, but it wasn't sold as a key value store. It's very, it's a really weird product. It was a product called Infoman, which was written to be a change in problem management system. But actually, the underlying platform was a database that was a key value store. You just basically stored your data in and out of this, but it had a little bit of um, app, application coding level layer and presentation layer to build. I guess what were like applications that were for a mainframe system. So it was all green screen and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. But you could build pages where you could fill data in, click and store the data and build it like a mini database with, with the graphics all around it. I guess what would have been like uh, Fox Pro or any of those sort of databases where you could do the, you know, the GUI side of it as well. But it was on a mainframe. Now, one of the things you could do is you could make a choice about how to um, respond to certain parts of the, the way that the data was accessed. And, and to do that, you had to write an assembler module, which ran something called an exit, which, which would actually make that decision um, for you. Now, recompiling an exit is not an easy thing to do. And if you do do put an exit incorrect in in incorrectly you're in, you're in <laughs> potentially in a, in a very bad situation if you, <laughs> if you code that incorrectly so i wrote a bit of software which would basically allow allow me to call a script from within this module so that mm -hmm. then when um, a user used the system they could code their own um, script which was in a language called c lists and if, if they got that wrong no no big deal but that meant they could do they could change this um, script dynamically so they didn't have to reboot or take the system down and we sold it to one of the banks in the uk so which was which was great it didn't sell it to anybody else and it was a tiny piece of code but it was giving us that dynamic capability to do something mm -hmm. it, where we wanted to be able to go in and dynamically redo that response based on a you know an input and it's a classic thing i think that comes up time and time again that we want to yep. be able to do that sort of thing because so much of our programming is responding to a request or an event and i think with the serverless yeah. side it strikes me that you know there's a whole opportunity here especially with the public cloud to optimize the costs the efficiency of mm -hmm. it and the technology so it's not just about letting somebody else look after that stuff behind the script, the scenes it changes the billing model it changes the whole whole series of yep. things yeah, 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 I agree. And and actually, it's interesting that you bring up mainframe because, and, and this would be a fun thing to explore someday somewhere, right? If mainframes had beat out Unix in the in the early 90s, Unix war kind of thing, 
technologies like Kubernetes would have never been necessary. So much of that was just in the way that mainframes were architected. But in some ways, the mainframe really latched on to something that we just now learned with cloud and that, as you just pointed out, is a core piece of what serverless offers us. And that's that kind of multi-tenancy security model. Uh, And that's the thing that CGI lacked. It's the thing that PHP lacked and all of those kinds of first-gen technologies. And we essentially had to build them up from scratch to mirror the a, a kind of security model that was actually inherent in the in the mainframe architecture in the first place. And so your example actually comes closer to the two key <laughs> features of serverless, right? Well, there's the programming model, but there's also the part that you want the you want that sequestered off, right? You want to be able to provide a place where someone else can provide executable event request response function kind of thing in a sandboxed environment that was leak proof and that was controllable from outside, right? And and then yeah. At billing onto that, and, and you have a business model. <laughs> and and the, the reason that the mainframe lost out, you know, it's Microsoft's fault. If you go back and look, <laughs> it's true. No, it's, this is this is. If you go back and look at the history, um, in the sixties we had System Three Hundred and Sixty. In the seventies they evolved that to System Three Hundred and Seventy. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. never a System Three Hundred and Eighty because IBM went off and did something different. They thought that risk machines and that would be more successful. So they didn't do it, but also they had all the, all the antitrust coming with, with Microsoft. Uh-huh. So they were really yep. scared and really worried about bringing out yet another dominant system. So they went down a, a different route. And then at the 90s, they brought back the mainframe of System 390, by which stage other technologies, especially Microsoft, had already yep. got a foothold. So that was the end of that. So yep. there's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's some really interesting stuff around how that evolved, but it's not our discussion for today. Yeah, but I do think that part, you know, if we were to tie it back in, though, I do think that part about the concept of the computer essentially being a cluster of tenants, that was the mainframe model, right? Yeah. Then we went to the computer as being a single tenant thing, right? Both both Windows and, and Mac OS at that time were very single tenant oriented. And even Unix took the, made the shift from being a multi-tenant operating system to really being a single tenant one, right? We we tend to think about them these days as, well, you got maybe a couple of users per Unix system and anything else, you need a hypervisor layer. And now I think we just kind of, the, the cloud is basically the story of walking back toward the multi-tenant architecture. Uh, and so I think, you know, history could have been differently, it was different, it wasn't, yeah. but serverless, I think is one of those steps in that really that evolution of back toward the multi-tenant mega systems uh, that can power hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of tenants' uh, compute, uh, well, software, right? Yeah. Applications uh, in, in the same hardware cluster of, of pieces of hardware. Yeah, and it's true. And if you look at it, you know, you could run batch jobs, you could run online sessions, you could run long running tasks, and each of those long running tasks themselves could support multiple tasks. So it definitely was Mm -hmm. very much a highly parallel and definitely very strongly secure in terms of uh, being able to have multiple tenants as well. That was really important. And it sounds like, you know, those are the sorts of things that serverless needs as attributes. And I touched briefly on the, you know, that that transactional nature of it, but security itself, you know, must be a huge aspect to this to making sure that it's done right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what, uh, you know, if you look at, virtual machines and you look at containers, the things that made those two technologies a good fit for cloud computing was the core level security models where each has some trade-offs, right? The virtual machine being able to run an entire operating system meant that, you know, from kernel upward, uh, really everything had to be accommodated, right? So the runtime really had to be able to execute that full stack, but it meant that the security model could be very, very strict, right? Essentially you have some virtual devices at the bottom of it that you that you're responsible for securing containers sharing the kernel space makes the security model a different proposition Mm. right because in the container model two containers may have their own file systems may have their own system libraries may have their own applications but they're sharing the kernel space and that means the kernel becomes your your security perimeter and that's a big attack surface you know what we were looking for as we're looking at those two you know virtual machines is the big heavyweight model and and containers being sort of the middleweight model we were looking for a lightweight model that had very similar characteristics. Uh, you know, ideally it would fall even stronger than than containers on the security scale. You know, smaller attack surface. Uh, but but we don't. You know, approaching VMs is is an intense value proposition, right? There's a really good security model there. And WebAssembly ended up looking like a really good technology because it provided a very good security sandbox model that we could then extend right the, the idea with WebAssembly is if you read the specification uh, you know and if you've got insomnia it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to read mm. 
if you read the specification, you know, really the idea is that all uh, that, that, that all it can do is really core computation. It has no access to the resources outside of it other than uh, compute and memory. And even those are bounded by the sandbox in which it runs. And then specifications like WASI, the WebAssembly System Interface, say, okay, here is how we would inject into an environment like that a sandboxed representation of a file system and a sandboxed representation of environment variables. And so your security model is really as strong as uh, the core, core WebAssembly specification plus the, uh, the particular way in which you expose services. Uh, and that's nice um, because it's an evaluate, evaluatable security model. And uh, that's what makes it attractive for us for serverless. Because really in serverless, you know, instead of running the entire operating system or instead of running a full-on application plus all of its system libraries, you're really saying, I just want this one small chunk of code. It's going to be an event handler type thing. It's going to take a request of some sort. It's likely going to return a response of some sort. HTTP world's really easy. You get an HTTP request, you turn on an HTTP response. A pub sub is a little different. You get a request and whether you respond to it or not is sort of up to you. But both of those models are good examples of the kind of event-based model that, is, that a serverless solution should be really good at. So again, we're writing code like we were back in the CGI days, like we are in the event handler, you know, event handler classic event handler thing in, in GUI design. But in this case, we're renting somebody else's compute space to do it, right? And, and that somebody else wants to have that good, strong security model to say, I can execute essentially untrusted code from anybody and be able to contain anything to prevent it from either attacking other serverless functions on that environment or, or VMs or containers, or attacking the host operating system. Uh, so that, I, I think, you know, where we've really gotten, I think, in this conversation is saying, okay, so there's a programming model, right? It's the event response programming model that we've seen throughout history. And as we saw both the mainframe and the, yep. and the Unix and PC world. Keeps worlds. coming back, keeps coming around. Yep, that's, that, yeah, nothing is new in this environment. It's, yep. it's, like, it's like science, we move in iterative cycles. We don't just keep pioneering brand new things. I guess that's why it's called computer science there. Uh, you know, so we've got the we've got the programming model, we've got the sandboxing and execution model and the sort of multi-tenancy model. All of those really have to be present for us to hit serverless the way we for us to implement serverless the way we want to implement uh, serverless. And I think that's what's exciting about where we were with Lambda and Azure Functions and Google Cloud Functions and that whole ilk when when it came around and what I would consider sort of like I think that's really serverless V1, right? That's mm -hmm. the first time I can think of where we really checked off all the checkboxes was when Lambda appeared on the scene about, oh my goodness, it's been about 10 years now. I would just like to, to very quickly just talk about the transactional nature of the pay by usage bit. And then I'd like to dive into uh -huh. the maturity model bit. But let's just talk about that first, because if anybody hasn't yeah. worked out why on earth would we be even be bothered about this? You know, it, whilst it's nice to be able to execute something in a controlled fashion and run a bit of potentially totally insecure code and have it massively secure, <laughs> which is a, you know, a massive benefit uh -huh. in its own right. Actually, there's a potential cost and transactional and perfect fit for the cloud type nature to this in the sense that you can actually bill somebody by the time, every time they've run that code and how much that code's consumed, if you like. I'm not sure exactly what the billing model structure is are, but it's more transactional in, in nature. Yeah. So rather than saying, yeah. well, let's build a VM and find that VM run, well, sometimes 25% of the time, sometimes 50%, rarely 100%, and you'd be charged for the yeah. full cost of the VM. With, with serverless, you're being charged just as you use it. And I, I sort of look at that and think of the taxi versus car hire versus car ownership model. You know, that, that analogy comes up all the time, I think. And taxi is really more like the transactional nature of a service, serverless. Leasing a car is probably a bit more like the cloud and leasing something and buying a car is like, yeah. you know, on-premises on data center. So what it's saying is it's saying, I'm not saying uh, it might be more expensive to run serverless full, you know, on a cloud full time, mm -hmm. but actually in reality, nobody ever runs everything 100% flat out in most environments. So actually transactional charging could actually be quite beneficial for people. Yeah, I, I like that car and taxi analogy because I think it really gets to the heart of the, what serverless originally offered and, and how that has become one of our most compelling use cases. 
you know, virtual machines, you're running them all the time, right? Uh, so along come containers and, and, and Kubernetes and we're saying, hey, hey, you know, we can pack more applications onto your particular virtual machine or your particular, uh, you know, bare metal machine, right? But the process design of microservices and of all the different kinds of applications we run in containers were really that same thing, right? You stand up a database and you run it all the time. You stand up a microservice and you run it all the time. And there was actually a little bit of a catch here that over time has proven to make this model slightly more expensive than I, for one, ever imagined when we started. And that's that you run replicas of it because the stuff that you're running inside of these clusters is, is fairly volatile. And so yeah. you may have three, five, seven, nine, 15, however many instances of the same application running. And for the most part, this is really, this really got us, this is what got Fermion started, was this, this kind of insight going, for the most part, these things are sitting around idle, right? Yep. Like you said before, you know, 20, 50, even on, even on peak days, you might only be hitting 80% compute efficiency on these things, right? The system's still 20% idle. Most of the time, the system's probably around 93% idle. So that means we have data centers and data centers full of things that are essentially, uh, you know, over-provisioned. We have far more compute power in service than we need to handle the workload at that given moment. And serverless really can be, you know, from an operator mindset, right? Not, not you know, shelving the developer experience for a while. From the operator mindset, what serverless provides for us is a way to really start packing multiple applications onto a particular chunk of compute power and start to optimize for that compute. Uh, so at, at Fermion, you know, we did a bunch of experimentation early because this was something we were really keen on understanding. Uh, you know, your typical Kubernetes cluster on, on paper maxes out at around 110 containers per virtual machine or per yeah. hardware node. It's actually hard-coded into the Kubernetes source. You, I've seen some people, Amazon does this. Amazon actually bumped this up to near 200 or maybe in the low 200s. Uh, and we said, okay, so... You know, that's 200 pods or 200 containers running on that system. Uh, what could we do if we could really pack these in here given the event model? And we were starting to push these upwards of 1,000 applications per node. Uh, and, and you can do this cheaply because replicating across five nodes doesn't mean you're running five copies of it in, in the serverless world, right? It means you can run up to five, you know, simultaneous. Well, you can actually run up to hundreds of thousands of simultaneous copies at that point because you can, you know, start... Tens, tens of thousands on each individual node. And so, uh, you know, the, the upshot of this, rather than going into the, the mathematical <laughs> model here, the upshot of this is essentially you can really pack a lot of applications into a, a relatively svelte compute offering, right? So in that case, then, uh, you need to, first of all, change your model of, of how you're thinking about long-running processes, right? And then serverless kind of handles that, right? Developers write short-lived processes instead of long-lived processes. They run for milliseconds to minutes instead of, you know, hours to, to months, as, as in the model that you'd see in a tr traditional microservice or a traditional server. But the other one that you pointed out is billing. How do we, or or we could call it accounting, right? Because billing implies it's that, that there's a customer and there's a Yeah, accounting would be a fairer, fairer way of doing it, yeah. Yeah, still. in that case, you would just say, you know, even even if you're running all this stuff on-prem in your own cluster, yeah. There's, there's a sense in which you're saying how much compute power is accounted for for this particular application versus that one. And one of the stats that absolutely blew me away when I heard it was at reInvent in November, uh, the, when the, the Lambda team was up talking about new Lambda features and, and one of the presenters said, Lambda executes 10 trillion requests per month. 10 trillion, trillion. serverless wow. functions are started executed to completion and stopped. That's like, you know, you find yourself going, yeah, I can count the zeros, but I don't have any frame of reference for a yeah. number that big. Yeah. I mean, how does uh, that work out per, per minute or per second? I mean, that was even trying to break that down. That's, that's a significant, significant number. That's a huge number. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Amazon decided to, to bill for this on a fairly sophisticated matrix, right? It's compute milliseconds, um, memory consumption per millisecond. I'm going to get all these terms wrong because it actually gets, you know, gateways, requests, egress and ingress traffic. There's so there's sort of like a multi-dimensional one. But if you simplify it down, it's really a question of how many resources were used during the invocation of that one function. You know, even if that function's execution is only milliseconds long, then you want to figure out a way to total it up and then 
account for and then, you know, in, in our case, charge for the yeah. right unit of consumption there. And that, that's really complex because if you now, and we're going to talk about the maturity side of things, you're, you're talking about billing for effectively something where something might be more back-end heavy it might be more memory heavy mm -hmm. so you need to be able mm -hmm. to account for that or it might be more io intensive so you need to account for that so not every single serverless script is going to look the same so you have to charge based on the, the, the resources that are being used but what it leads me to sort of ask the question about is that this this the whole maturity model thing because typically when we look back at um his his let's use our analogy again mainframe etc cetera, etc cetera. mainframes had dedicated networking through SNA, uh -huh. they had dedicated storage, storage subsystems, and those platforms were evolved and became quite mature. When we look at, say, virtualization and containers, especially the, the, the last sort of containerized world, which is probably the easiest one for people to remember, we didn't really have persistent storage. We didn't really, we didn't have any networking because networking is a, is a plugin. So, and, mm -hmm. and storage has become a plugin. So those things came along after the, the frameworks were put in place. So how has that evolved with, um, serverless and how's that you know and how's that got us to where we are yeah i think that's one of the areas where we're starting you know i i i talked about lambda and azure functions and things like that as being sort of serverless v1 and i think this is where we're starting to see a turn and a number of ideas emerge that i think are starting to become sort of serverless v2 um and 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 one of them is performance-based, and we can check that one off and get that one out of the way early, right? A lot of the V1 model was built on that first wave, the very first wave of cloud infrastructure, which was virtual machines powering all the things. And I, I think, you know, looking at some of these serverless platforms under the hood, essentially you have a virtual machine. And again, virtual machine is designed to run from kernel all the way up to application layer. So it's the yep. jumbo version, right? A virtual machine allocated per function. And that's a huge compute Ooh, unit for yeah. a very small thing. Yeah. But part of the reason why was because of what you just pointed out. There were a certain number of primitives. They could do a certain number of things. And many of these were kind of added on as time went. But that was the battle-tested piece as functions as a service were first introduced. That meant that latency was was considerably higher. I think when you when you look at serverless v1 kinds of implementations, you see cold start latencies from the 200 to 500 milliseconds. That's down. I mean, only a year and a half ago, it was 500 to 700 milliseconds, and uh, and AWS has has worked hard to get it down to 200. In this kind of v2 world, if you're going to replatform it on a new kind of compute like WebAssembly then you can really optimize for packing stuff in there and, and running multi-tenant stuff on, on a single uh, virtual machine or on a single piece of bare metal. And consequently, WebAssembly startup being as fast as it is, sometimes faster than native because of the way you can do some optimization, then you end up with cold start times around one millisecond or two milliseconds instead of 200 to 500 milliseconds. Right. Um, and that's a, that's an important thing simply because, mm. you know, you need go for no further than Google page rankings, right? 100 milliseconds yeah. will ding you. 200 yeah. milliseconds will really ding you. A millisecond, 10 milliseconds, that, no, nah, you're, you're in the A plus category right there. So that's, that's one, right? And then this other one is, uh, as you pointed out, we've gone from this world of saying, and this is, I think, one of the foibles of early container technology. We went from saying, hey, we don't really have a good storage solution. We don't really have good solutions for all this. So, uh, and also we're trying to do distributed computing. And if you combine those two, then, then what you turn around and say is, hey, developer, you're going to write stateless microservices now. You can't do you know, state. Oh, you don't need state anymore, yeah, right? State's a thing of the past. And the storage. reason why we said that is... You, right? don't need, you don't need persistent storage. Yeah. Just have yeah. seven yeah, copies of it and copy between, yeah. you know. And, and it was it was a little bit of hubris. I, and I can say this because I was part of the group that was building those kinds of patterns. There's a little bit of hubris in there and a little bit of saying, you know, if I'm completely honest, it's state is hard, right? Mm. And, and we did not at that point have the tools to do state well. And so we just passed the problem on to the developer and say, yep. hey, developer, state's so passe. You don't do state anymore. You know, you do stateless now. And those first few years of development, I, you know, I'm pivoting back and forth during my deus years and during the even before that when I was at HP Cloud between playing the operations role and playing the developer role and I was frustrated as a developer about the things I as a as a DevOps person was building because it was like hey I need to store state where am I going to store it and uh, you know as you pointed out one thing we've seen really take off in the last 10 years really in particular in the last five years has been a mo mature set of sort of virtualized interfaces to do this kind of thing 
And I think, you know, serverless V2, I think, is all about saying, okay, let's swing the pendulum back from the operations side of the house saying, hey, developers, you have to write all your applications according to what turned out to be some fairly leaky abstractions, right? And, and you know, stateless. And if you need state, then you got to do this and you got to do this. And when you write your code, you got to do this. And by the way, also make sure you do this. You know, that's a lot of platform dictating back up to devs how they have to write their code. And I think if we see the pendulum start to swing back the other way, then what we see is we want to accommodate developers being as productive as they possibly can be and, and write code the way that they need to write code and have the platform itself become the thing that takes that application and implements it in a way that is actually conducive to running in a distributed fashion. Uh, so this kind of introduces maybe another uh, thing that we didn't talk about right up front, but a lot of the shift from VMs to containers and containers to serverless has been the story of how do we do distributed computing well? Brendan Burns, uh, who created Kubernetes and he was my boss at Microsoft, loved to say, and rightfully so, you know, rewind the clock 10 years and distributed computing was CS500 or CS400, right? One of the most advanced courses you could take. Yep. Now it's CS100. The expectation is that all of us will write distributed applications. And, and that comes in the form of stateless microservices. Uh, now I think we're seeing, I, I think maybe he was a little overambitious. I think that's what's currently tra we're transitioning to now. And ideally, it's that distributed computing is not a thing the developer really has to think about as they're writing the applications other than saying, I don't, I don't know, I started that sentence without realizing where I was going. Well, I, it's I, really I, something they shouldn't have to think about. If we're doing it absolutely. right, they shouldn't have to think about it. I mean, I look at it and think, when we first talked about containers, uh, and we didn't have the infrastructure and the ecosystem to do uh, persistent storage, there was a lot of talk around, oh, well, we'll you will just replicate. And I, used, I, I looked at that and thought, it's like that game you used to see in the 70s, where, on, or rather on um, variety shows, where these guys would have a pole where they'd put a plate on and they spin the plate. <laughs> and then you'd have a row of these um, plates and they'd go between them all, spinning them, keeping them all up. And it was how many uh -huh. of these in a row could they keep up? Well, as soon as one goes and it starts to wobble a bit, his attention is distracted to that one. So then mm -hmm. they miss the fact that another one started to go. And all of a sudden, keeping the, all of those things running is incredibly hard and then suddenly the whole lot collapses and when one collapses and they all collapse you've lost everything so yeah just assuming that everything would be stateless and just in memory in containers that were all talking to mm -hmm. each other and replicating was a mistake and the second thing is that as data increases in capacity and say you've got like a terabyte database and you've got say four or five replicas every time a replica dies and has to be restarted or something happens you're now copying a terabyte's worth of data to another copy so mm -hmm. the more more failures you have the more restarts you have the more east-west traffic for uh, storage you've got which you just don't need to do because that data yeah. could still be there. You could just bring that, that that failed instance back up and just tell it, well, just use the copy you've got and just do a, you know, a consistency check on it. Those technologies already exist. So we were sort of trying to reinvent the wheel, I think a little bit with some of that, but you've, you've highlighted yeah. a very interesting point. You know, how do you do things like storage, persistent storage within a serverless environment? And I, I think that where we ended up was that, you know, again, in the story of the last five to seven years, it's been the story of uh, one of the big stories has been how data went from how, how we got from the statelessness part to figuring out better and better ways to do stateful services inside of cloud environments to the point where today, you know, there there is no shortage of stateful offerings that will give you, you know, anything from simple key value storage up through, you know, robust uh, relational databases and just about every everything in between. Uh, but we had already built a model that told the developer, you write stateless applications, you write them this particular way. Oh, by the way, here's how you graft in these kinds of services. Uh, so I think what we're, I think where we are now is on the operations side of the house, we understand well now what it means to provide a data service for someone. On the developer side, now is the time we can start bridging back toward the developer and say, we can make it dead simple for you to make use of these services. In fact, one of the coolest things now is that we appear to be at the position of being able to say, we can actually make it easier for you to use data services now 
than in the pre-cloud days when you just stood up a database locally and, you know, stood this up locally and you connected directly to the database or everybody shared a database on a Unix server and we all connected to that same one. Now we, I think, have have a very, very easy story. And, and it goes something like this. With the serverless model, particularly like the WebAssembly serverless model, right? We've got the piece of guest code. That's the serverless function you're writing. And then it's executing inside of the host runtime. And unlike CGI, where it was a matter of shelling out and executing an, a separate piece of code on the system, in the WebAssembly model and in these new serverless v2 models, you're executing code inside of a long-running, uh, massively multi-tenant runtime, right, that can start up multiple sandboxes, each of which is uh, securely sequestered from the others. But the other thing that that runtime can do is make available services into the guest runtime that the guest runtime doesn't have to configure. So let's get away right. from the abstraction here and okay. talk about this very practically. Rewind, you know, if I rewind to my, even to my Rails days, which I think, you know, Rails and, and, and Spring and a lot of those kind of mature pre-cloud uh, application stack development tools did a fantastic job of making data services something that was just automatic part of the way a developer worked. But we still had to manage connections and often connection pools and credentials and all of that was a coding problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and we somehow had to get the credentials into the code and then pass them into a driver and the driver had to connect and we had to check and make sure everything was working. Well, now all of that can be in the host runtime, which means essentially, if we're doing it right, we can create a world in which the developer says, hey, I need to run this SQL query and doesn't say anything about what the underlying actual database is somewhere, what the credentials are for that, because that's properly considered just configuration that should not make its way into the code ever. And yep. uh, and in fact, has some security, some big security boons when you don't have to put it into the code and it can be executed in the guest runtime. And that's, so when, when Fermion started building a key value storage, this was what we wanted to demonstrate. Right. We wanted to say, okay, as a developer, I can, just get and set and list and delete keys and values, right? It should be that simple. And all I should have to do is declare to the runtime, I need a key value storage. Nothing, nothing else about it except that it satisfies this interface. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like Spring or some of those, those kinds of data management services from before, but so simple that there's really nothing I have to decide infrastructure-wise at all, including username and password. And it's just right there in the code, and I can interact with it. Now, locally, when I do that, the experience should be I don't have to manage any local service, right? It's just there. And, and it might be implemented in something as silly as like a JSON file on disk. In fact, we use SQLite as a local data store for, for local key value development and spin. But it could be as simple as flat files, right? I, as a developer, shouldn't know or care. But when I deploy the application up to the cloud, again, declaring only that I need a key value storage, and my thing is going to be spread across, you know, potentially 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 different worker nodes somewhere, the data store in the back end needs to handle all those problems you and I just talked about, right? D distribution and potentially leader election or any of those kinds of things. I, as a developer, shouldn't have to know anything at all about that. The same, the same contract, the same interface that was satisfied locally merely needs to be satisfied remotely. I don't need to know anything about drivers. I don't know, need to know anything about the TLS configuration. None of that, right? And I think that's what's really exciting that we're, that we're starting to see in this serverless v2. It was kind of funny that... Uh, you know, Fermion announced key value storage in this way on, I think it was April 18th. Ten days later, Dino announced the same kind of key value storage. And I went and looked at the announcement. Oh. And I'm like, this is awesome. The interface is almost the same. It's the same verbs. It's the same. And then, you know, a week later, Vercel announced the same kind of thing. And that was, it was at that moment that I went, oh, it's happening, right? Yeah. Uh, a group is broken away from the Peloton and is saying, okay, we see now how to accommodate developers in this new world that we just spent the last seven to 10 years building, you know, in this last five to seven years of doing storage right now, we're starting to accommodate what developers really want, which is let me think a lot less about infrastructure and a lot less about ops and just be able to write the code I, I care about. So there's two two sides to that. First one, first of all, from a developer perspective, being able to just say to treat storage the storage of data as a function. So why shouldn't a database call be another persistent storage call? It should it should just be exactly the same. I just want to store and retrieve mm -hmm. some piece of information. You know, just like mm -hmm. we store block block storage, object storage, files. Mm -hmm. It should just be the same, and it should be down to the backend platform how it manages that, as you said. So I think. There's a second part to that, and that's 
there's a differentiator now for the platform providers to say, well, here's the features that we can build into our serverless uh, ecosystem to offer those sort of solutions. Mm -hmm. And here's the value add we can add on top of that. So it might be, for example, Matt, they might say, okay, the key value store, we'll back it up, we'll do other things with it, we'll, you know, whatever it happens to be, or we'll give you a, a whole host of different database types. Uh-huh. And then how they manage that data on your behalf in the background becomes a value add that that service provider can now give the, the customer and the developer yeah. still gets the same experience, but doesn't have to change their code to make it work. So, you know, it's a sort of a win-win in, in lots of respects, I think. Yeah. And I've made, I've made a lot here of sort of the operations perspective and the developer's perspective. And I think it's worth kind of circling back on this and saying, so if the the one thing we don't want to do is overcorrect for the developer to the point where we begin to make the operations team's lives miserable again, right? So if we can start to build this right for the developer, they've got sort of the code level abstraction, the interface that says, here's, here's what a SQL database looks like, or, or, or here's what a key value storage looks like, or here's what object storage looks like. And, and they merely are doing essentially API calls to, to interact with this thing, right? So it feels like, at best case, local storage, worst case, I, I still have to just decide, for example, which flavor of SQL that I'm going to use, and, and that will have some implications on what the backend is, right? That's the world I, as a developer, want to live in. But from the operator's perspective, we still have to make sure we're saying, okay, yes, Spin has a default, you know, key value storage. And yes, Fermion Cloud has a default key value storage, both of which will work great for for developers. But if we're deploying into, say, your Kubernetes cluster and you as the operator really want to use Redis as your key value storage backend, how do we make sure that we are creating an an, an adapter layer in which Mm. the operations team can say, we want to use Redis for this, or or even we want to use our own homegrown thing, or we just want to use Postgres with a very simplified model to store key value, you know, whatever they want to do. And so there's a challenge on both sides of the equation here. And one that, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time thinking about because we want to make sure that we lean into all the things we just learned about how to run distributed applications in, in environments like Kubernetes, but still at the same time start to bridge back toward the developer and say, you don't have to learn all of that just to write your application, right? And, and in fact, we're going to try and make it, we are going to make it easier than even the way you used to do things in the pre-cloud era. Uh, so you're, you're, you're exactly right there that it's, there's, there's a little bit, there are a couple different points where we could introduce tension if we did it incorrectly. Mm. But ideally where we want to end up is saying, we have finally learned our lesson about, or we're or at least iterated. Uh, again, I, I all science works in cycles, not not linearly, right? We've at least iterated on how much of a of, of a distinction we can make be- between the role of an operations team, whether it's platform engineers or DevOps, you know, and the role of a developer team. And the, the big point of friction that I've seen over the last few years was that developers controlled the Docker file. Developers controlled the the core libraries. You know, essentially they'd ship either the Docker images or the container, uh, sorry, the Helm charts, you know, over to the ops team. And then the ops team would put them into place. When things went wrong, the operations team gets stuck in this horrible position in which they have to begin their mediation process and kick it back over the wall to the developers and say, hey, I know you're busy, interrupt your workflow right now and patch open SSL in all 1400 of these container images, get them pushed back into the registry, give them new tags, and then we'll redistribute them, right? That's the classic way of introducing tension between two teams is to cause the stress of an emergency event for one team to immediately bleed over to the other team. And then You know, the ops team is basically like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. We can't do anything until you hurry up. And the developers are like, look, I had 99 other things I was supposed to do today. And patching SSL was not one of them. And and that's the kind of thing where we think if we can start to build these abstractions correctly, then we can reduce that kind of bleed from day two operations back into developer land, as well as, you know, developers having to know as as they code a lot about the operational aspect. So I think, you know, we're not going to solve all the problems in a day. And as, as passionate as I am about serverless and WebAssembly, I acknowledge the fact that we're just building another stair on a staircase to I don't know where. Yeah. Uh, but But I think we're making some progress on this particular one right now. Which is great. And it's funny, when you were saying that, Matt, I was just thinking, about so many parallels, I and mean, we've talked about parallels all the way through this conversation, mm-hmm. but there are so many parallels you can look at to the way we've done things over time. So even just what you were saying there, I was just thinking back to the days when you had to understand how to program a graphics card 
and you know and then lib libraries came in so that you uh -huh. didn't have to worry about that and programming to a device and then the bios on a pc solved that and you wrote to a, a standardized interface forever and well you know, could look at vmware and say the same thing within a vm vmware environment every platform inevitably there is that always that shift backwards and forwards where there's a degree mm -hmm. of control and freedom and at the same time a degree of wanting to make sure you make life easier so you could say well the more you let the developer get down in the weeds the more they can do the more they the more interesting it could be but actually <laughs> yeah. the, the long-term supportability of that becomes a real challenge because you now you've introduced a lot of detail that somebody has to go and, and look after the more you abstract it centrally the more you can standardize that and you can change that only when it needs to be changed and it can affect everything yeah. and it can be more controlled but obviously you give away some of the control that the developer had previously perhaps depending on what they wanted to do and you're always trying to find that right spot that gives you the ability to do both yeah yeah that that uh, hardware software engineer distinction is, is a really good example uh because yeah. i mean as you're saying that i'm like yeah you know, I remember when I used to have to talk to driver engineers fairly frequently to yeah. say, I can't do this kind of thing. Or, you know, my toolkit, my graphical toolkit doesn't support this feature or your car doesn't support this feature of this graphical tool. You know, and that's, I, it's been years since I've even, thought, even about thought about that. I know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, but, what made me think about it is just that whole thing around the Microsoft side of things where there was stuff that you did in early Windows where you just knew there was there were calls that were being made directly to the hardware that won't go through the official API. And as soon as you try to, <laughs> right. you know, then you try and virtualize yep. a, a certain platform and it just, it, it falls over because you, it, it was expecting to talk to the hardware directly. So it's an, it's an evolving problem. So very quickly, you, you made an announcement and you talked about the key value store, just go over that again quickly. And then we, then we can wrap up our discussion, I think, and people can go away and have a think about what we've been saying. Yeah, so we've we really, there are two big things that Fermion is building, right? Spin is an open source tool for developing this kind of serverless application that you can run kind of wherever you want to run it. But we wanted to also build a place that was the easiest place for people to execute these kinds of things, to roll them into production, and that's Fermion Cloud. Uh, so, you know, Spin 1.0, uh, you know, after working on it for about a year, we released Spin 1.0 in March. And then about a month later, we rolled some of this key value storage system out that, you know, it was basically an implementation of what, we, uh, what we've been talking about here. This idea that the platform handles the, the nuances of, of managing the key value storage and the developer merely declares their intent to use it and is immediately off to the races, you know, getting and setting and listing and deleting to their heart's content. Perfect. So if people want to go and learn more about your company, where are we going to point them towards? Yeah, Fermion.com is an easy place. Our GitHub repo at GitHub slash Fermion is also a great place if you want to dive into the code. And uh, developer.fermion.com uh, is a great place to go and kind of read through the quick start guide. You can get started. You know, our, our thing is we want to make it possible for people to go from blinking cursor to their first deployed application in 66 seconds or less. So you can take us up on that challenge and go to developer.fermion.com and try it out. Perfect. Well, I'll, I'll make sure I put all those things into the show notes. Um, but for now, what a great conversation. We've just gone off in yeah. every possible direction we can think of. Yeah. You know, we've just got to find another topic to do it again. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah. I really okay. enjoyed this. This is a fun conversation. Absolutely. Thanks. Matt, thank you very much for your time. It's been really great to talk to you. I, rec I recommend everybody goes online and has a look at your website and understands exactly what this means. But for now, thanks for your time and I look forward to catching up soon. Yep. Me too. Thanks. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.